0: The Mako Shark. With top speeds of 60 miles an hour and impressive agility, this shark is the fastest in the world and a crazy formidable predator. They usually average around 8 to 10 feet in length, but some Makos seem to be considerably larger than that. The question is, just how big and where are these monster Makos? Welcome to Shark Week, the podcast. I'm Luke Tipple, marine biologist and a frequent voice on my favourite things, oceans and sharks. I'm stoked to bring the magic of Shark Week right to your ears. Sharks have been a big part of my life for over 20 years now, studying them and diving with them all around the world. I guess that's given me some of the street cred to participate in many Shark Week documentaries throughout the years. And now to be your host. So whether you've never seen Shark Week before or you've been a diehard fan over the 30 plus years it's been around, this podcast is for you. To tell us a bit about Monster Makos, I'm thrilled to welcome an incredible husband and wife duo, stars of the Shark Week special, Dawn of the Monster Mako underwater filmmaker and shark expert, Joe Romero, and marine biologist and cinematographer, Lauren Romero. Hey, I think the last time we spoke, you were just getting your boat up and going and you were chasing around massive makos and trying to get as gnarly as possible. Is that pretty much sum up your lives? Yeah. Pretty
1: much. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah,
0: The season started up again. Yeah.
1: We just started the season. So we're in full swing up here, chasing makos around.
0: So, what does starting up the season mean for you? Is it filming? Is it research? Is it tourism? Like, what what do you get involved in?
1: Uh, we have a bit of everything. So we do. I have my own PhD research going on that we do all summer, um, but we do our own filming work too. So we're pretty, pretty busy, packed up right. in the summertime. We try and give everything its own time, but.
2: It's like following the stories of everything she's doing. So, I mean, she's got a pretty extensive PhD project that involves, like, so many different species of sharks that we're constantly, like, I get to tag along and, like, <laughs> see what we can get from it. Like, what kind of stories and what kind of things we get to see. And last couple of years, we've seen some pretty cool stuff. So, I mean, like, especially last year, it was pretty, pretty hectic.
1: Yeah, so, we have a lot of species up here. So, every day yeah, it was, a, it was a good
2: year. So, in a couple more years of doing it. And it'll probably mean a
0: lifetime of doing it. <laughs> well, your focus is uh, has seemed to be at least so far on big mako sharks. Is that still an emphasis for your research? Yeah, I think it's one of those animals that it's just like it, it,
2: we we were like talking about this like the other day. It's like the comparison of all different like animals on the planet that you see all the time, and it's like you always see adult animals, and when you see a baby, it's the rarity. You know, and even in sharks, if you see, like, a baby great white or a baby tiger shark, everybody makes a big deal of it. But, like, mako's super rare to see, like, an adult mako. Like, seeing babies are way more prevalent and easy than seeing an adult. An adult's like a unicorn in the shark world. It's like one of those animals. If there was any shark that was ever hunted, it's that animal. You know, it's like, it's just become one of those sharks for us that it's just still hard to find and still hard to like know much about but a lot of my opinions of them have changed a lot throughout the years
0: well how's that i mean you've you've spent probably more time in the water actually in the water you know hand on snout with a bunch of makos and probably anyone else in the world would that be fair to characterize I think it's,
2: yeah, I think that's pretty fair. I, I mean, I haven't really heard it said like that before, but I'll go with that, I guess. Yeah, I would say that's I should, true. <laughs> I should probably say snout to camera. Yeah, most yeah. Right, for sure. I like, even to this day, I have a hard time like bringing my, without being without my camera, even on just like stupid dives, like things that you just go down, you can go down to go new to Bronx or
0: like slugs and I'd still have a camera with me just in case. Yeah, you feel the weird slug without gets your camera, like, crazy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's probably because you're so used to pushing sharks off with your camera. What do you do without it? It feels
2: like, yeah, you got that security blanket with you and it's hard to like get rid of it. Like feels like when you're like diving underwater and you don't have it, it feels like you're swimming without fins. I don't know if you've done that in a while, but if you've ever, like, gone back in the water and, like, taken your fins off and just been like, oh, my God. No, I haven't. It feels I, like I can't, can't do anything.
1: You can't swim
2: anywhere. <laughs> it's, it's like the most – you feel like the most useless thing in the world. It's like immediately you know why you
0: have it. Like, no, no, I, 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 uh, I do spend most of the time in the water without a camera, though, and I do enviously look at the cameramen who are getting mobbed by sharks and thinking, well – It'd be nice to have a camera in front of me at times.
1: Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, it really is. (laughs) Yeah,
2: the people without them have it definitely a lot worse. Yeah. For sure, like with a lot of things. Well, because then
1: you have to use your hands and then it's just, it's easier when you have a nice big box in front of you to just be like, oh, go over there, you know.
2: So I think in the beginning of our diving career, we started doing them. And especially with some of the guys that we were working with within the Shark Week cruise, we had just not known We had known very few people to do even just, like, one, like, big Mako versus, like, a couple big Makos or trying to, like, see what big Makos were doing at night or anything like that. So there was a lot of territory where we felt like we had not known too many people on our block that had (laughs) already done it. So there was really hard to something to compare it to, be like, well, this guy had done it and he was okay. You know, where it was, like, there was a lot of, like, putting our faith to the test with those bigger sharks. And I think, like a lot of what we discovered is a lot of their, they're a lot smarter than we think. They put a lot of like real judgment into what they're like, you know, looking at. They're very cautious. And then like, there's a lot to do with their tooth morphology that just makes those animals that once they commit into something, they're kind of locked into that prey because a lot of the animals that they catch are so fast that they have like this denture to hold on to these, these things. That commitment means that they're super vulnerable. And that ability to do that is like, they don't really want to do it. They'll bite at things to do things, but to really like commit into something, they got to really know what it is to want. And they don't really like each other very much. So you're dealing with one, you don't necessarily have to deal with two at the same exact time. You never really see like a rarity. It's like, I have a photo of two Makos coming together. And I think it's like one of the few times I've ever like seen
0: them actually touch where they just don't, yeah, they kind of give each other a lot of space. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, In your work, you know, locally you're looking for makos and looking for the larger ones. Characterize for us what that is. You know, if someone's never seen a mako, never seen a mako show before, how old are they at adult stage? How big are they at adult stage? And why aren't you seeing them locally? Well, getting back into like, the makos are like one of five
2: like endothermic species, these sort of species, like a very close relative to the great white. They look really similar to them, except they just have like little characteristics that make them like... They're your own unique shark. The fastest shark in the world. Uh, now one of the, like, an endangered shark within the world. And it's, um, I mean, like, as far as characteristics, like... it's think it's nine
1: saying- feet for... Females would be characterized as like adult where
2: they can actually. Yeah. L- adult, reproduce. Reproduce. 14 um, is probably like maximum length of what you hear those animals really being yeah. at. So it's like they're, they're not like as big as great whites, but there's a lot of contention of like who is the toughest out of both of them because the behavior is different out
0: of either one of these animals. Got it. So to put it simply, we're at, we're at about nine feet where they start being characterized as adults. You guys are really looking for the 10 foot plus, the, the 13, 14 foot ones. How old are they at that stage? Uh, They say, like, (laughs) like 25 to
2: 30 years old is, like, a guess. I mean, nobody really knows, you know. It's like you look at great whites and how much they, like, age. But cold water sharks seem to, like, be around a little bit more than warm water from what I've, like, I mean, I've read. No one really knows. So I I guess, yeah, I guess if
0: it's to take a guess, like 25, 30, 30 years old, you know, probably a pretty fair educated guess there. So what drove Mm -hmm. you out to the, is it the Azores or the Azores? Uh, The Azores.
2: Well, there are nine islands in the middle of the Atlantic. We hear always kind of like different rumors about it. But like I had a friend, Michael, that came back and he had like these images of this shark that could only describe as being like a submarine. (laughs) Like this massive mako. I've seen a lot of big makos on film, and after seeing a lot of makos on film, you kind of can distinguish even size by looking at it on film, like the size of the fins compared to the body, like what does the face look like, like characteristics as far as color. When you saw the size of this animal, it really made us want to like go back out there. So
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's also a place, I mean, you grew up there, so we do a lot of research here at home, so it was nice to go back where you (laughs) grew up and really see how the sharks are there as well and try and find... It's just like that connection between
2: that, like, the big Mako where i like, been born and was raised the first years of my life. And I don't know. It just felt like one of those things that seemed, like, very prophetic is being, like, if we were going to chase a big animal, this seemed like one of the areas we may have luck doing it. And having that trail of, like, someone just coming back from there and being like, hey, this is a photo of, like, probably the largest
0: Mako we've ever seen. Can't pass that up, (laughs) (laughs) Lauren, had you been out there before?
1: Um, Yes, we were out there a couple years ago, but we weren't actually in the water. So this was my first time actually in the water out there. So there's so much wildlife. It was absolutely amazing. It's
0: where we got engaged. Yeah. Nice. Well, what were your first impressions of being in the water with the big animals out there?
1: I think it's a, it's the same a lot as here. I mean, it's open ocean, there's no bottom. So, I mean, really anything can come from anywhere except for above really so you just really have to be aware of what's out there I mean I had never been there before so I at home I know kind of yeah, what's going to show up dived out there yeah I haven't dived out there before it's so like at home I kind of know but out there you just you don't really know well I didn't really know so that was new and fun for me
2: clarity yeah, there's a lot more clarity yeah, in the water over clear. there. It's like 100 and 200 feet of visibility, oh, and it's at home, there's like not even, not even yeah. close. Yeah. <laughs> you can get out to
0: the Gulf Stream where it starts to get really nice, but majority of it is a yeah. little bit more difficult than that. One of the uh, the the really interesting things about the show for me was uh, the parallel you drew between the you know relationship and presence of makos to swordfish. Can you kind of describe that for me? Convergent evolution.
2: Two animals that come together that like like are from completely different backgrounds, completely different species that basically look the same, act the same, hunt kind of the same animals. Just like one evolved to have a spe- like a sword at the end of its face, and the other one evolved to have a bunch of teeth, and they both just don't like each other. <laughs> but the fins look the same. Well, you you describe them as
0: doing yeah, you describe them as doing battle. Oh, for
2: sure. Yeah, they're like warriors. Those two.
0: Tell us about that. I want to hear about swordfish and Mako battling away. Well, I mean,
2: you think about, like, I I think about, like, sharks all the time as far as, like, we all do. And it's, like, but as far as, like, hunting and eating things, like, how they have, like, some sharks ambush things. Some sharks, like, hammerheads are just, like, scouring the bottom, like, rubbing their face against sand till one day something just starts stabbing them, you know, (laughs) stabbing their eyeballs. And they're like, there it is. And they can attack and kill something with their face. But all these animals, like the evolution of them, to have something that drove you to the point where you have like a mako's, like how a mako looks, like, you know, like how its face looks, how it's like set up, how it's like it's just made to catch and hold on to super fast animals. And then to have another animal that occupies the same space, does the same thing. And they're so highly aggressive with each other that that animal evolved a sword on the end of its face <laughs> to be able to defend against things like that, attacking it. So it's like, you know, and they kind of, they, they both have like this, uh, like this crescent-shaped tail, this really thick caudal keel. The counter shading's almost the same. The coloring's almost the same. Their fins are all, they have dorsal fins, pectoral fins, like all the same things that each other have. They're just... One's a fish with two sets of gills, one on either side. One's a shark with 10 gills, five on either side and like teeth. And it's like, but they, if you saw one swimming away really fast from the surface, you'd be hard pressed to identify it immediately as one or
0: the other. Have you, per- have you personally seen them in the water together and how they, you know, stand off? I have seen swordfish at the water like, like really
2: briefly, but swordfish are one of those animals. And most people don't even realize that. Like swordfish are one of those animals. They're so highly, this is an aggressive animal. This is an animal that's constantly hunted enough where most things will spook it enough where it just starts to be aggressive with people. And most of the things of people filming swordfish, they've like attacked the cameraman. (laughs) So they're, they're, they're one of those fish that it's still not a lot known about. And maybe like one day, you know, we'll change our mind about how we feel about those two. But for me, it's like one of those animals, if someone was like, hey, there's a swordfish around, I would feel like, you know, like real danger. Yeah, because you yeah. never know how they're going to react to each other and how are they going to react to you. And it's like, and that thing has like a three-foot sword at the end yeah. of its face <laughs> It will put through something. And it seems like Makos you see with full on like sp- like spikes through their faces, through their sides. We I saw a Mako on a shoot for Shark Week that had one that went through its stomach and came out the other side. And this shark was like 10 feet long and this sword's bill was like broken off through its body. And it was still swimming around fine. The shark was still swimming around fine. Still, The shark was still swimming around fine. No one knows what happened to the swordfish, but it definitely lost its sword. <laughs> like,
1: like, <laughs> yeah. Oh, it got away.
2: <laughs> yeah. So I, I don't know how that works if they like break off or whatever, but I know like, and you see like all kinds of old paintings of the two of them together. It's like they occupy the same spaces. They hunt the same food. They hunt like one hunts the other. I think that's like, there's a lot to those two. Yeah.
0: Uh, I think in, in uh previous shows, you've described uh, the Mako's ability to, you know, take the tail off, take the locomotion off of their, their target species. And uh, are the swordfish on the Mako's menu or is it more of a defense thing? Oh, for sure. They're on the yeah. Mako's menu. For sure. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Like they just one of those animals that
2: like once it's, it, it, I think probably maybe because they're, they're in the same area as well doesn't really help it, but I've seen them react very promisingly to 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 swordfish. it It's, it's like probably a
1: large size, too. That's yeah, pretty much what they just go for as a swordfish. once they hit like probably like ten feet, they're just. Going for those larger animals.
2: Yeah, once they, yeah, it's like the caloric intake of an animal. Like, how much is it like really worth for an animal like of 10 foot, 12 foot nature to like chase a mackerel, you know? So it's like something to catch and kill that's going to have a lot more of like a caloric intake. It's going to be something like a swordfish, but like what, what an animal to kind of like tackle and kill with only your face. (laughs) Like, literally, yeah.
0: Lauren, Joe's in the water. He doesn't have his camera and he's either going to get. Is getting tangle with either a, a mako or a swordfish, and he has to take on one of them. Which one would you prefer?
1: A mako for sure. <laughs> I would be, I'd be jumping in behind him, like throwing in a plexiglass shield. Oh no, if you can't. A swordfish. In this
0: theoretical, you can't. No. <laughs>
1: <laughs> then I would take a twelve-foot mako over a swordfish, just because I've, I've never been in the water with a swordfish i have no idea i've just heard stories and i'd rather not have you speared with a sword i think you can handle the mouth of a mako much much better
2: I'd handle it but you <laughs> you'd definitely you definitely uh, how do you feel about that Jeff? I, I think like a mako itself would probably come over to judge what you were first and they're not bumpy so they're kind of like mouthy so you would probably have ability to like tap it away or hmm. tap its head or whatever, really but a, sword. a swordfish is so fast that what I've seen them approach things that I feel like <laughs> they're much more dangerous fish than people think they are. They're not, we're not talking about marlin. We're not talking about sailfish. We're talking about like a deep water swordfish, like a big full on swordfish. Like these are
0: animals that most people don't get to see. For what it's worth, Lauren, I think that's a pretty good call. I'd, I'd make the same myself. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I noticed that you guys are, are frequently just on snorkel, you know, mass snorkel fins and jumping in the water with the cameras. Is there a strategy for that? Like you want to be on the surface? Is there a, a might there be a better use for scuba in that type of environment? Like why is that your preference? I mean, scuba would probably be the, mo- the the
2: easiest to do where you could just jump in and kind of like pick the level of anything you'd want to film. But the animals, as you know, like they don't do what we normally want to do. And there's a lot of power play with like makos and, big sharks like that, where if you get whoever's below, is just going to be the one that is leveling off with a shark. So it's like once you put everybody at the surface, it kind of levels the playing field. The shark feels pretty secure knowing that you're up there. And it's like it will come up to you a little bit closer as soon as you seem to like get yourself below a shark. It doesn't really want to approach you as easy. It's kind of like seems more vulnerable to that. The sound itself seems to affect them. I mean, every time we've done scuba with them, it depends on the animal. We've had a lot of like, success at times. And then we've had a lot of times where it's just like a lot of animals run away from us and they just see it and go, I have no idea what that is. I don't trust it. I don't like it like where it's positioning itself. And then they just, they take off. And plus it complicates like the amount of time that the animal's there. You're sitting on a boat. You see the animal show up. You have a little short amount of time where this animal that's the fastest shark in the world is going to sit there and judge if it's going to hang around or if it's going to leave. And you can either choose to sit on the boat, get ready, strap in, yeah. grab your scuba <laughs> tank, put up the, like, put on the valves, check all the airflow,
1: or grab just a snorkel and go <laughs> get in the
2: water and immediately do your work where you're you can get to the animal and the animal will feel more comfortable and get closer to you so it's like it's and you're honestly a lot eight, like it's easier for you to turn around and this animal's constantly making you spin checking you out so it's like you're just keeping it in front of you
0: So, I, I have absolutely no doubt that both of you are going to keep pursuing this until you find the, the greatest monster Mako ever. Uh, the one that you found out in the Azores, how big was it? It was big.
1: <laughs> like, <laughs> big enough. It was
2: big. It didn't really do like, it wasn't there for like hours or anything like that, yeah. but it definitely enough to like, where we saw it. Yeah, it was, it was big. Well, what would surprise you at this point, Joe? Uh, yeah? I don't know. There's still like other, like, there's two species of Makos out there, Luke. Oh. That'd yeah. be, that'd be, uh, That'd be something yeah. to kinda of like see. And then there's just like all kinds of different ones after that. You know, like you can get that makeup, then the biggest one of that makeup, and have them <laughs> both together or anything like that. But there's there's always something that surprises you. Size is one of those things that still surprised me. I thought after a certain amount of time you're like, Yeah, I've definitely seen some of the biggest ones. Nothing will really surprise me. And then you
0: see another one and you'd be like, Yeah, except for that one. <laughs> That one's kind of surprising. Well, for all of our sake, I hope you do continue to stay surprised. <laughs> and what Thanks, would be <laughs> what would be the you know the penultimate? I mean, I think what is the biggest mako that's ever been caught? Sized at was it like fifteen feet? Oh, is that right? I think it's around yeah. there. Yeah, I think it's, it's around there, around that size. I think that's where they were like judging it. I
2: don't, yeah. know, I don't really know what like they actually they go by weight so yeah. much of the time. So that it's <laughs> like. But yeah, I would guess that
0: would be fair, fair judgment. Well. I do hope you stay surprised and get one as big as your boat. That'd be really cool. <laughs> that one. would be
1: crazy. Yeah, one
0: like long enough to stay there, long enough for the tape measure be
2: like this. One definitely made fifteen feet.
0: <laughs> I love it. Yeah. it. It certainly makes the uh, the urge to get in the water with massive predator much more immediate. Like Lauren, can you maybe speak to that? Because I, I think for people at home, maybe it's not. They they have trouble grasping the idea of just sitting there on a boat, waiting, waiting, waiting until somebody says, go. And as soon as they say go, there's a splash, then there's a 10 plus foot predator yeah. in front of you. And your goal is to get right up on it.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a lot of waiting on a boat and then they show up really fast. And if you're not ready, you could miss any opportunity that you have. So I think over the years, it's just been really easy for us. To grab a snorkel, grab the camera, jump in as quiet as possible. And it's really easy to talk to each other that way. I mean, I know on scuba, sometimes you have like underwater comms, but I find it easier being on snorkel, being able to like say like, watch out behind you, all that sort of stuff. So, but... It's helped us a lot just being able to jump in really quickly because, I mean, a lot of times they will hang around for, you know, an hour or more, but some fish won't, you know, and you only get 10, 20 minutes. So, it's nice to just get any interaction that you can.
0: Both of you are looking down lenses or at least at screens, you know, you're you're pretty heavily occupied. What's the strategy with both of you diving together, husband, wife team? You've both got great big cameras. Who's watching your backs or how do you watch each other's back?
1: Yeah, I think... With us, we kind of have the unspoken like looks. Like I can kind of tell when one's like right there, and I just have to like see what his face looks like. You know, like you. don't even have to say it, which is really nice. that like we know each other that well to know, like, okay, turn around.
2: Like what the reaction <laughs> is. But if the tension's there. Like, yeah. it's like it's definitely different. Like, when we first started working together, it was just like, you know, divers working in the same field. You know, it's like yeah. just race car drivers. And then one day, the yeah. race car driver becomes your wife. And
1: now you actually care about <laughs> yeah. the other person <laughs> and in and the not, water.
2: <laughs> It's not that you don't care. You just don't want to, you know, there's a lot cautious, more wrapped you know? up into that yeah. than it is. Like, if we just sat there and there was just... You know, like, if you just sat there and you just dived with someone that you don't really have any, like, personal connection with after, like, you got to go home to and stuff. And it's, like, you screw up at work or do anything at work, you do just, like, that's the end of it right there. Like, you got to go home and have to hear about it.
1: You didn't (laughs) tell (laughs) me (laughs) it was behind you.
0: Like, just,
2: yeah. It's just, like, there's a ton of dynamics to it that, like, make it a lot different. And it definitely makes me feel differently about diving with certain situations where if you're by yourself versus when you have someone with you, you know, that... Yeah. Uh,
0: I'm I'm curious about that risk assessment because that's something that we, you know, as divers and doing this kind of thing, we're always thinking about. Um, But I've personally never worked with my spouse doing that that kind of work. So what, for both of you, what does that process look like when you really do have to think about somebody's, you know, long-term livelihood where you really can't just look at each other and go, you know, somebody could get hurt on this and that's okay. Because when you're talking to your best buddy, you know you'll visit him in hospital later, but you know, you don't have to deal with that every day. Does it change how you guys work? Calculated risk is how it's always
2: worked. But there's definitely a feeling of like at least I know there's someone on the boat that wants to make sure, like you know, that isn't like is really paying attention to being like like making sure that your safety is in account. Not that people aren't there that, aren't there always are you know we have great safety people and great support but there's always just knowing that you know they're definitely going to make sure that you're like back on the boat and everything's okay Mm. and you know there's there's that but when they get put in the water with you or when there's some kind of like situation that was like dangerous there's been a couple of shoots where there's been a few things where it's just like you know there's moments and then you get back and you know like it definitely makes you feel differently
1: Mm. Okay, I can't say really, it
2: didn't. I can't say it I doesn't. I think
1: for you too, you've seen so many Makos that you really have a good any understanding of that. Yeah, any shark. Any but shark. You have a good understanding of them. So I don't know. For me, at least, I rely a lot on how you react to it and if you feel but that But the it's dynamic of ha-
2: having like <laughs> that something that can happen to you or something that yeah. can happen to anything like that is just like that sort of like stress. Is like I've worked a bunch with no one with me and yeah. I've worked in like where it's actually, you know, with my wife with me and there's a super difference of yeah. working alone versus working with your spouse. You you feel like there's a lot of like risk. You always calculate your risk but everything becomes heightened and you really look at like what's going on. And I mean there are some times too where like there are things where I feel like I will even like do more because we're, we're like pushing each other. Mm. There is that, too, where we feel like, you know, there is like you feel ca- caution for the other person. But at the same time, sometimes we get pretty competitive with each other and <laughs> we're pushing each other into spaces that are also probably a little, you know, dangerous.
0: Yeah. And, you know, you can talk about who's to blame over dinner later on, right? That's kind of how it works. (laughs) So, okay, take us with all that dynamic you guys have got going on, your desire to get over and see some great big makos, you know, getting back to the homeland. um, Tell me about some of the shark experiences you had over there.
2: Well, we had some really good blue and mako action. I mean, we definitely had some, like, interesting things. I mean, some things that the locals had never even really seen. <laughs> we had brought out some of Lauren's new tools, some deep water, like, uh deep like water yeah, sentry cameras yeah. that we were, like, dropping in super depths. And then we ended up getting, like, six gills and kite fin sharks and all these things that we weren't expecting to really see that we were just, like— getting blessed with. So, I mean, that place, at least then, at that time period, we were getting really lucky with how it was all, full, all folding. But it was just, yeah, there was a lot to be he- held there. As far as sharks, yeah, we had a good
0: good few weeks. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah we had a lot of species, for sure. So
0: the, the six-heels kite fins, that was all on the, the drop-down bruv, right? So what, what depths were you up. at? What type of soak times were you looking at?
1: Uh, we were at 1,500 feet. I want to say, um, we, they can record for up to seven hours. So they were down there for a long time and we dropped, um, I think we dropped three or four of them, um, while we were there, probably more. Um, but like every time we got the six skills and the kite fins. So that was really amazing to see. I mean, you can't see that shark unless you have those cameras. So it's not like they're just on the surface. So
2: and a ton of other fish, too. But. Yeah. Yeah. And, I mean, that's the one thing we paid attention to, but there was like a million other things we saw, yeah, too.
1: Yeah, that one was really cool. <laughs> yeah,
2: that's the ones that we were like, yeah. But there was, like, fish that would just cover yeah. the screen and do all kinds of crazy stuff. It was pretty intense.
0: Lauren, for the people who don't know, describe the bruv rig to us.
1: So the, our bruvs actually have no line attached to them at all. So they once they leave the boat, they are not attached. Um, they have an an acoustic receiver attached to the bottom of them. So each one has its own special code um, that when we go back to pick them up, I have like a little, a little box that then I'll put a cord over in, in the water and put in its code. It beeps. And then there's a little, I don't know what to call it. Uh, like screw on piece on the bottom. And then that screws right off and it comes up with the float and then, Hopefully it's in range where you can see it, which usually it is. I mean, it's, real, it's really heavy, it, so it does come up pretty slowly. And, I mean, we found it every single time. It's a huge orange float, so.
2: Yeah, yeah. most of that stuff, like, when we did them in the past, was always, like, ropes. So yeah. we, like, throw off. And it's, like, as soon as you get to, like, 300 feet, 300 feet of rope is, like, a barrel, a, <laughs> a barrel full of rope. Yeah, it a And it's, like, man. anybody who's pulled up anything from 300 feet is, like, yeah. so, like, 1,500 feet, 1,800 feet, they're starting to approach, like, like 2,000 feet. It yeah, was, I mean,
1: these can go all the way to 3,000 feet. So they can the go really far. The
2: tetherless systems are, yeah. are like where it really it was. But before then, I think like a lot of that stuff was done with like submarines and stuff. There wasn't really anything doing that. Like that's all a new tech.
0: Yeah. So um, for to get really particular about it, these are cameras that are baited. That you put weights on that can sink down now to apparently 3,000 feet, which is incredible. And you can remotely call them up by pressing a magic button and they come back to the surface. Is that right? It's yep. basically it, yeah. <laughs> Like they release it like themselves
2: from the bottom and they just they come up to the surface. It's insane. Like back in the day, it was something you just
0: never believed. It's the equivalent of sending off like a satellite, I guess, just in yeah. the opposite direction. And on these, you saw, you know, six gills, kite fins. Was there anything else like kind of extraordinary that you saw in those waters?
1: I mean the amount In of the fish deep life, water or like, like
0: or oh, like the regular water? Well as
1: like. soon as <laughs> like you just watch the bruv actually drop and once it lands, all these fish just go whoosh, and they just swarm the thing. Like I've never Boar you fish. can't even see past these fish. Like it's absolutely yeah. crazy so these, these
2: little orange fish yeah. and they just like fill the entire screen and every time they yeah. part you're like what's coming through what's coming through and it'd be like an eel yeah. or like yeah. something different but like those things like covered up
0: everything you couldn't see much besides them thousands of them well you've, you've got big lights on them right mm-hmm. so it yeah. must just to the fish look like this you know alien landing craft oh, just yeah. coming down 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 and then
2: it's amazing how like <laughs> not intimidated they are by an alien landing craft <laughs> like anything on land would react differently like, but in the water, like you just send something down like that and they're like, hey, what's that? And they it's just so go running up to it like yeah. start tapping on the lens, you know, but it was all in all. I mean, the waters, though, themselves, insane. Lots of different stuff. We saw all kinds of stuff. I didn't really like we had whale experiences that we were just blown away by, kind of like started a bunch of like interests into us <laughs> about like whales, where it was like we, you know, we spend so much time with sharks that we just don't really see those kind of interactions. And when you have something like that, it just kind of like focused our attention into
0: looking at different things. But overall, like, pretty awesome. Tell us about the experience of actually finding Makos out there.
1: Uh, Finding Makos, I mean, that's always, I think, a challenge really anywhere. But, yeah, I mean, we search high, low for weeks um and we eventually found what we came there for
2: even the locals there had no idea like how to start doing this like how to like where to begin where we were looking at so we just had to like go by a lot of like past experiences to be able to lock down on things but when we started like seeing them I remember a few locals looking at us and being like yeah that's the first Makos we've ever seen you know that they had not been able to like really like Locate where these animals were eat, what they were really doing. It's still so highly unexplored there. Like, it's not like here. Like, here you go down to a marina, there's, like, tons of recreational fishing boats and, like, people all by the water and all this stuff. And there's, like, it just seems like there's just artisanal fishing, nothing else. Like, there's not a lot of, like, ocean-going things and stuff all happening there where they're out there just figuring that stuff out. I don't know. It definitely felt felt very uh ancient, like in a lot of like Jurassic park sort of way i don't know if that seems real, but that's kind of what it was yeah
0: it, it makes sense, but it is kind of surprising to me i mean i'm I'm used to you know in environments like that, being able to find makers, you know sure they're you know they're rare and hard to find, but you but you can find them, and I would have expected them to be a little more prevalent in those waters is that Is that a reason for concern, do you think? I think there's a lot of, like, fishing pressure going on there. The
2: size of the ones we were looking for are even, like, more rare. So it was like, but they had not... I think a lot of the sharks they were targeting, they had never really known the specificity of, like, that animal and how, like, you know, how actually... uh, What's, uh, I guess, specific of what they really want and what they want to do is that, that when they did... I think it kind of like opened a lot of eyes, but no, there's, there's a ton of fishing pressure out there as if any, as in anywhere all over the world. I mean, you think of a place like right in the center of the Atlantic, how like hard that must be to get to. And it's still like just taking tons of fishing yeah. pressure. And so. is,
0: it, is it local fishing pressure contracting for other countries or is it other countries' vessels using those waters? Did you Other countries' vessels, a lot of it. Yeah,
2: Portugal like has like, there's like kind of like a place of like a certain area of like protection around the Azores. But just like the Galapagos and a lot of that other stuff, it's like it's encroaching and like people overlap. They accidentally go over borders. <laughs> There's a lot of, like, fishing pressure from other countries that are around there because we are in the center of the Atlantic. You know, everybody's kind of, like, running around doing things. And that that kind of, like, putting us right in the center there doesn't, like, exclude us from, like, having other countries kind of surround us and start fishing around us and how much they encroach on us. But it's it's... There's definitely a lot of pressure around the area and you can see that a lot of the people there that are fishing, and a lot of people that are diving and doing all their like the ecotourism or whatever, they can feel the pressure from all the commercial fishing around. Yeah.
0: So, Lauren, I'm I'm curious about your PhD work. You said you're working on you know a whole bunch of different species and it's fairly far ranging. And obviously, Joe's keeping up with you, following around and getting a, a bunch of good footage. Uh, what is the thesis? What are you working on?
1: So we're working on whites, blues, makos and poor beagles. We're looking at mating. We're looking at feeding. We're looking at how they're interacting with each other. Um, how they're interacting with the same species, sizes, sex, um, and that sort of um, information. We have all sorts of camera technology, from fin cams to those uh, to the brubs that we have. Um, we also do a lot of water sampling for environmental. It's DNA, um, and that is actually a really new technology that's really unique. And you just take a water sample, send it off to the lab, and it'll tell you what what species was in that sample within, I think, like a two to four day period. So that is, you know, you don't have to use like nets anymore or anything Usually like to kill that. For it. Yeah,
0: and you're able to do that in open ocean water, yeah. or are we talking about low flow estuaries or anywhere,
1: yeah? anywhere. So you can do anywhere from, like, 10 foot, ten feet of water all the way to thousands of feet of water. So that's been really helpful for us that we've been doing the last few years. And it's really interesting to, like, see over time, like, what species are showing up first, when they're showing up, when they're leaving, how are they, like... Um,
0: interacting with each yeah, other. Yeah,
1: interacting with each other. Are they in the same areas? Are they just crossing paths, so... Well,
0: that's fascinating. I mean, uh, what's the mechanic behind... Uh, the DNA getting left behind. Uh, uh, sharks and fish just swimming around just streaming DNA off their bodies?
1: Yeah, so it's, like, any, like, skin cells and, like, urine, you know, um, so... Any sort of DNA that will shed off any animal will just sit in the water column um, at a certain depth, and it there's done there's been a lot of research and that says that it won't really travel much once it's in the water column. So it is pretty accurate on okay that animal was just in that area within like a certain amount of space. So
0: it's like one of those technologies going to save yeah. lives. Yeah. Is it also yeah. you know depth specific? Like does it sink out? Or can you so
1: they so we take samples at least thirty feet because then once it's above thirty feet, you know, then like the currents would take it. So as long as you're under that 30 foot mark, they've done a lot of research that shows that it will stay within that area and it's not going to move very far.
0: And how can that research in knowing Um, what animals are using the water. How can that help, you know, sharks or, you know, makos or future shark knowledge?
1: It's just going to help knowing, you know, when these species are in the area. You know, a lot of times we're just relying on when we actually see them, especially with white sharks. You know, there's not... A lot of it out there is, oh, they're With showing up, in With sharks, it's usually long
2: lines where they, like, set out yeah. long lines and they kill, like, 200 sharks and go, oh, there were 200 sharks at this time in this area. You yeah, know, it's
1: but like a lot weird. of time, you know, they are here. They can be here year-round, like the cold-water sharks or whatever. But, I mean, it's changing over time based on when they show up and when they leave. So it's really good to have that sort of information when we're trying to like make laws and that sort of stuff.
0: Can you actually, with the DNA, can you tell that there's different individuals or is it just like a species was there or can you tell, hey, there's, you know, there's enough DNA and variants in it that we know that there's, you know, 20 makos that swam straight through that area yesterday? Mm
1: Mm-hmm. I, I wish. it's The technology's yeah. not there yet. I think give it a couple years and they're going to be advanced enough. But you can tell how much is in a sample. So if you get a lot, you know, it's probably more than one. But if you just get trace amounts, they were probably just passing through the area. So, I mean, we can't tell that exactly yet. But I think in a few years, it's going to be at that level for sure because it's already advanced so much in just the few years that it's been around. All right. Well, Lauren,
0: Joe, hey, thank you so much for your time today. Um, It was a really great show. And I know you guys are out there just producing constantly, so we can expect a lot of great things coming from you. Thanks,
1: man.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having us, man. All right. That wraps up another episode of Shark Week, the podcast. Stay tuned to this feed for more interviews with shark experts that give us a behind-the-scenes scoop on what's really happening out at sea. And don't forget... We're keeping the shark passion alive after Shark Week is over. We're covering the sharkiest current topics, talking to top scientists and experts, and learning about the latest conservation efforts to keep this amazing animal from extinction. I want to again thank Joe and Lauren for joining us on this show. Check out Dawn of the Monster Mako on Discovery. You won't want to miss it. Be sure to rate us five stars and subscribe for more amazing Shark Week content. I'm Luke Tipple. Until next time.